And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the intersection where faith and reason intersect, of course. And I'm Doug Keck, your gatekeeper here at the Mothership in Irondale, Alabama. Remember, your questions are a very important part of this program. Send them to spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, magiscenter.com and purposefuluniverse.com and spitzercenter.org. And of course, Father Spitzer's Universe, this program is always available on our super EWTN YouTube channel and our even better EWTN on-demand page. While you're out, the, out on our on-demand page, you can check out St. Luke's Gospel Seasons 1 and 2, Journey Through the Parables of Jesus, with scripture scholar from Ireland, very popular, Francis Hogan, as he explains the Gospel of Luke. You can see it now for free and on demand 24-7. Today's topic, we continue with Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. Boy, can we use it now. And boy, you should get that book if you don't have it already. Check it out through EWTN's religious catalog, EWTNRC.com, where you can also get our wonderful book of the month by our extraordinary ex-ordinary, Bishop Robert J. Baker. His book, Rejoicing in Our Hope, and it was based on some programming he did for us on Christmas and on Advent, perfect for your family. Also perfect for your family is another edition of Father Spitzer's Universe that we couldn't do without the one and only Father Spitzer. Great to see you and great to be with you again, my friend. <laughs> well, it's great to be with you, Doug. Very good. So if you'd Start like to... Start with a prayer. Absolutely. That'd be great. Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us today to inspire, guide, and protect us so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Asking all of these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Very good. And uh, this past week on Bookmark, we've been running the interview that, we're, that we did out at Napa. So uh, I thought it went pretty well. So oh, great. it looked good. You look great. I looked okay. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it, was, it, was, it was kind of fun to be in person uh, doing the interview rather than uh, Absolutely. separated by uh, the great divide here. So anyway... So speaking of the Great Divide, there's a Great Divide in this country, certainly what appears to be over abortion. And, of course, uh, the AP yeah. reports Democrats had plenty of good news to celebrate Tuesday's off-year elections. Yep. More evidence they can win races centered on, guess what, De the debate over abortion, abortion nationally. In fact, they're yeah. key issues from the AP besides cheering for these victories, which gives you an idea where the AP is coming from. Key issues, they point out. Democrats got more evidence they can win races centered on this. Abortion rights supporters won big on the Ohio ballot measure. Democratic governor won in Kentucky, and he used abortion. Uh, that's Andy Beshar, and uh, they held on to uh, that particular thing, and, and they won big also in Virginia. So uh, things, yeah. unfortunately, mm -hmm. for us to realize as pro-lifers that, you know, uh, there, there's an incredible war still out there, and we're not winning the messaging uh, because they've had a much better uh, 
period of time and have more support in the institutional world, I think, than unfortunately our position. And also they seem to be willing to put a lot more money into these things than, than many of the pro-life organizations are willing to or have the capability of, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, of course, um, one of our very good friends uh, really did try to support the uh, Ohio um, uh, mm -hmm. uh, right to Life uh, initiative to get the uh, abortion off the uh, constitutional, uh, off the state constitution, and he really did uh, uh, put his uh, money out there. But alas, it was not, um, you know, uh, mm -hmm. able to to turn the tide. But yeah. it did bring things down, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit. But um, I think we do have to keep fighting. I mm -hmm. do think, um, um, you know, if we do put in a lot of social media. Uh, kinds of ads and and uh, try to um, you know be very savvy mm -hmm. about this. Um, it's going to be um, you know uh, uh, I think maybe a, a good turn of events eventually. Right. I think we're also going to have to you know in the swing states um, keep uh, these um, uh, you know the abortion issues separated in some way um, from the candidates who are. Uh, running on the Republican ticket uh, so that we can sort of run the initiatives in one way and then uh, the candidates can run a campaign in the other way. Maybe that's a, mm -hmm. a possible strategy. I don't know right now what to, what to say, but I do think that, um, that uh, we do have to keep fighting these issues, right. uh, I think state by state, but I think we're going to have to get um, uh, very savvy about our program and and uh, how we're going to uh, use social media, especially uh, to turn things around. I do know in Ohio, uh, I think things went from about 64 down to about 56%, uh, I think is what they wound up winning by. But, mm -hmm. um, but it shows that uh, this, right. you know, fighting does work. Uh, ads do work. I do think, though, right. that um, we're going to have to do a lot more in, in that area. Um, but, uh, you know, the, we'll see what happens. And, right. um, you know, I think uh, pro-life candidates are going to have to, uh, in some way, um, you know, you, you know, I think they can lean into the issue in some ways, but in other ways, right. you know, you don't want to deny um, the importance of the, of, the, uh, of the issue. At the same time, um, you know, we have a huge economic um, foundation that we can build upon mm -hmm. as well and a variety of other issues right. so that, you know, I mean, I know that uh, th there's going to be a lot of attempts to make it a sole issue campaign, Absolutely. but I think um, uh, there's a diversity of issues that we can bring up. And um, I think uh, in the end, the pocketbook is going to matter. Right. And so, um, you know, these were state uh, initiatives where the pocketbook wasn't on the line. And so we'll see what happens right. as we move forward. Right. And as the U.S. bishops, in fact, are backing the 15-week abortion ban, uh, seeing it as a positive step, uh, something that's been proposed, at least I think, by the Republicans in the, uh, in the Senate. So kind of, uh, you know, again, mm -hmm. it's not where you want to be, but it's a positive step forward. At the same time, um, yeah. in Ohio, um, Archbishop Schnur actually indicated it yeah. or said that we are in desperate need of conversion. He says, uh, you know, obviously yeah. uh, the hearts and minds of the culture are not with us on these things. And I think we're seeing that the, the pro-choice side is, is a plurality. And I think also I saw some numbers recently where it looked like as you got, you know, the baby boomers are kind of split 50-50 sort of in the pro-life thing, maybe a little more. 
Um, and then yeah. uh, the, the millennials are, you know, still more pro-abortion. But but when you get down to the under 30 crowd, it's like 80-20 in favor of pro-choice. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, the Gen Zs are definitely um, right. uh, hugely pro-choice. And that's... Uh, uh, swinging these uh, initiatives, right, but exactly. I, again, I think education can be uh, exceedingly right. helpful. But you, you have to break also the the culture's grip over the m mental view of um, of uh, sexuality, and it's not just the abortion thing itself. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of you know kind of an unlicensed sexual right, right. and it, what it's doing to people though is. Uh, pretty staggering. I mean, you can look at the depression and anxiety statistics, but when you also look at what has happened in terms of rapes and, you know, sexual crimes since the sexual revolution has begun, I mean, there has been a quintupling of uh, sexual crimes and uh, more than a quintupling of rapes uh, that have taken place ever since the great uh, sexual liberation has taken place uh, with a birth control pill, Masters and Johnson, etc. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, in, in uh, my book, I actually uh, trace, you know, what's going on. But what's also interesting uh, simultaneously is the demise of marriage. Well, it's not interesting, it's tragic, but, but the, uh, the demise of marriage um, that has taken place. And um, there is this reciprocal effect mm -hmm. between, uh, you know, religion and marriage. Often, you know, as these Thornton studies show, when religion is very strong, the marriage is very strong. When the marriage is very strong, it reinforces religion within the marriage, uh, you know, sort of a reciprocal causation. Mm -hmm. And this is a really important thing because both uh, religion and marriage are mainstay pillars of the society. So if this, uh, you know, is broken down over the long term, uh, you know, I, I'm departing, I know, from the abortion issue for just a second, mm -hmm. but I think we have to actually get this issue under control that really, if we look at this, it's actually going to undermine uh, culture itself. Mm -hmm. But I think what you're seeing in the same breath is just uh, the marriages are just breaking up. Uh, marriages are now one half of what they used to be a mere 40 years ago. And um, in, you know, divorces are double um, what they used to be a mere uh, 40 years ago. Uh, you can add it up. Uh, you know, the family is really under siege. Right. And more than that, I think the depression and anxiety statistics are related to the fact that there are not strong marriages, mm -hmm. that children are growing up without a regular two-parent family. That you know, I mean, uh, I you know, I can see this again and again and again. Um, that the the re, you know the repercussions mm -hmm. within the society, the repercussions within the family, are really really terrible. And so I think before you know, as we kind of approach this thing, I know you know, trying to tell people, well, you know, unlicensed uh, sexuality is probably not the best thing you could ever do for yourself. Right. Of course, I will be you know bombed off the proverbial <laughs> uh, stage because I've, I've tried to limit somebody's freedom. 
but I'm actually asking them to choose something for their own advantage. Mm -hmm. Choose, uh, you know, restraint for the sake of the society. Choose restraint in order to follow Christ, mm -hmm. because if you do, your religious commitment will go up, and of course, your marriages will be stronger, and that will be good for not only for you and your spouse, it'll be good above all for your children. Uh, two, parent, family is really important. Right. So the idea, you know, that we, you know, that, you know, nothing has happened since the sexual revolution. This is all just a great liberation and a great freedom that we can all enjoy today. And thank God that this has all uh, happened to right. us and we don't have any right. restraints on our freedom. It's all undermining right. us personally. It's undermining our families. It's creating just staggering increases, right. like doubling and tripling of depression, anxiety, substance abuse rates within the culture. Right. And of course, it's undermining the culture itself. As marriage goes, so goes the culture. How many times do we have to repeat this in right. history to see that the correlation is not just some subjective slippery slope it's as objective as anything can be sociologically. Right. So for all intents and purposes, right. I really believe that we need to also look at this issue. I don't think we can do this politically, right? right? No Absolutely. politician can get up there and talk about sexuality. Mm -hmm. But the church can do it. And we, you know, educators can do, do it. And, and we need to speak more loudly yeah, about it, like yes. what you're trying to do and some others are yes. trying to do. But we should hear that yeah, across the exactly. board, and we should be hearing it in local parishes and in homilies each week. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I mean, the whole thing of the victimless sin, you know, it's like it isn't victimless. I mean, how, how do we draw it to you 15 different ways? You want, you know, a complete decline in emotional health, a part of you and your spouse. You want your family to be undermined. You want your children to be raised with one parent or no parents. You want basically, uh, you know, the, the depression rate in the culture to be, you know, continuing to increase at 2.7 times, 2.7 times for young people. What are you talking about? This is like, this is a su cultural suicide. I mean, this is what needs to come out um, as soon as possible for the good of people, you know, and just quit trying to put it on the level of, you know, being a prude or not being a prude, uh, you know, tr trying to restrict your rights or not restrict your rights. This is either bad for us individually and bad for us as families and bad for us as a culture, or it's good. And now the statistics show decidedly how bad it is for us individually as a family and as a culture. Then if that's the case, why don't we try and think more maturely about, you know, what Jesus taught about sexuality, maybe why he taught that about sexuality, because when we pull it outside of commitment, we pull it outside of family, we pull it outside of, you know, the r r responsible raising of children, we pull it outside of really trying to remain committed to one another through good times and in bad. We try to, to separate it from our religious commitments itself, if indeed we have any, mm -hmm. then of course, the, the key thing is what happens at the end of the day if we continue on this road, we can begin to see complete sociological breakdown, uh, uh, you know, and certainly a complete social breakdown within and cultural breakdown within our society. And that is going to be, right. at the end of the day, something we'll right. probably never be able to recover from. We do need, right. though, educators. 
We do need the media to finally wake up and say, well, you know, our little trip into sexual fantasy land has been a disaster area. Let's take a look at why and let's take a look at what we can well, do. Don't you think and religious educators need to join in right. as well. One, one of the problems when you're dealing with the media, especially, and you're dealing even in uh, higher education especially, and we're seeing the effects of that not only as it relates to this kind mm -hmm. of bizarre understanding of autonomy, but also we're seeing it in the streets of the United States in this kind of justifying, you know, genocidal approach to Israel, and people are shocked yeah. at people coming out and supporting this yeah. thing. Well, that's that's this has been fermenting itself over the last 20 plus years, if not more, in higher education. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's it's the education. But also mm -hmm. when you're dealing with people who are dealing with their own personal sins, right? I mean, many of these people, you know, mm -hmm. in the media have had abortions or have counseled abortions, or mm -hmm. you've got people in higher education who live lifestyles or involved with abortion that, that are nowhere near what a Christian, in theory, approach should be to things. And so for them to acknowledge that they're wrong about these things means condemning their own lifestyle. Well, also, they could, you know, speaking fairly, they could also be addicted uh, to the lifestyle because mm -hmm. uh, sexuality is a, an exceptionally strong addiction. Uh, pornography is the fastest growing addiction uh, in the country by far. And we know that the consequences of pornography are increased depression. I mean, we have correlating, st correlating studies between depression. We know that when depression, uh, that when pornography um, viewing goes up, we know religious practice goes down precipitously in mm -hmm. almost inverse proportion. We know uh, that the, the increased sexual, be uh, uh, risky sexual behaviors is going to occur. We know that the divorce rate goes up by 2.3 times uh, once the um, the viewing of pornography, uh, you know, is is more than about uh, three hours uh, a week, which of course is incredible to mm -hmm. think about uh, just in itself. But when you think all, through all these things and you look at the fast-growing addiction, you know, pornography is now uh, threatening to involve 10% of the male population of this country. The addiction rate. I mean, you know, alcohol. And is is like six percent, and drugs are five percent. Wow, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this is like it's doubled up already. So you start looking at those statistics, and it's very worrisome when you look at the correlation with depression, look at the correlation with the abandonment of religion, look at the correlation with loss of job, look at the correlation with divorce rates, look at the correlation with the loss of intimacy, emotional intimacy, not just for the spouse, but for children, because it's all being, you know, emptied into this this vacuous pornography, et cetera, that they're looking at. And then you think they're addicted. They're not going to mm -hmm. like me saying this because right. they're addicted. But unless we get over it, I mean, the devil is going to checkmate us at some point. Hate to bring in the old right. devil uh, because he is certainly very much exacerbating this whole thing. And so as we look at, you know, the the consequences for the culture, it's pretty pretty right. bad. Well, we have but this, I do think we have to start right. naming what's Absolutely. going on. It's that mm -hmm. misguided compassion. It's this idea that you can't call out somebody mm -hmm. on something that is bad for them because, well, I'm addicted, so I can't help myself. Well, there are yeah. things you can do, okay? There are people who can help yeah. you. Uh, oh, yeah. That's an excuse. That's not a justification. And we have to move past the idea yeah. of, 
uh, well, we can't make anybody feel bad over the fact that that certain things are good and certain things are bad, and that's unfortunately uh, the society mm -hmm. is rejecting that that dichotomy. Also, on another level, with uh, yeah. talking about uh, politics and stuff, uh, the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, in an interview uh, recently indicated that. Uh, he, the Justice Department has an interest in pro-life Americans and people of faith in the light of revelation. The FBI was investigating traditional Catholics as p potential domestic terrorists and, and targeting pro-lifers out there yeah. and that this is actually something yeah. that was happened. We have evidence and, and that this has happened. Catholics, concerned parents at school boards, the evidence is very clear this has happened. This always reminds me of the great father Groeschel of great memory who said one time when after 9-11 yeah. he said they were so busy worrying about who was protesting at the at the abortion clinics that they didn't pay any attention to who the real terrorists are I feel like we're doing the same thing again today oh yeah no I mean it's it's uh, uh, completely amazing to me uh, that we have so many uh, truly pressing uh, economic uh, and international uh, political situations that are really, you know, on the verge of, of um, you know, destabilizing a lot of world economies mm -hmm. and destabilizing even our own interior security. And yet at the same time, you're worried about traditional Catholic pro-lifers? Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you know, if, if, if this is what our federal government is, is doing in the administrative state, I got to say, it's a real, not just a waste of time. It is a pitiable scapegoat of the uh, scapegoating of the innocent for you know real work and and, and real planning uh, to make to vouchsafe the security of this country and and its economy. So I think uh, yeah, I mean I, I think this is just like uh, we're going to protect our cultural addiction to sex. We're going to protect it at all costs because. Uh, we know deep down inside that's what the administrative state is here to do. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thanks, you guys. We really appreciate it. And, uh, and well, as a Catholic, you know, thanks uh, so well, much for the vote of confidence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, addicted people Sorry. are easy to control, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. You know, if you're Boy, looking. Boy, is that if, true. If that's what your concern is. Another story, just before we get to our questions, uh, just a quick aside. The New York Post recently published an article explaining how to safely use a Ouija board to contact the dead. Uh, and this article, obviously, from Church Pop says, however, this is both morally sinful and dangerous. Uh, the Diocese of Nashville's exorcist, Father Dan Rehill, explained why medium psychics, Ouija boards, occult practices aren't healthy for your soul. I just thought it was kind of bizarre for somebody to put an article in about, uh, you know, how you can use it safely, which would indicate that there are some concerns about, even for that person, about it not being safe when we know you should stay totally away from this, as you've said many times. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the oxymoron of the century. Mm -hmm. If you're out there practicing occult activities, and Ouija board is no question um, an occult activity, you are messing with spirits that have evil in front of that name spirit. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, this is not just a bunch of benign spirits who are just there moving the planchet around the board so that all the little kitties around the board can have their fun. They are basically 
basically finding ways in all the lies that are perpetuated on that Ouija board. They're finding ways of wheedling into your life. And if you allow them, and it is very easy to allow them in, mm -hmm. if you allow them in, don't worry. They will take the open door, and sooner or later, you are going to discover it. And when you do, it will be exceedingly unpleasant. Mm -hmm. The point is, stop it never get started with it and teach your kids right. how dangerous it is and every occult practice just teach them it's dangerous you are opening the door not to just benign spirits you're opening the door to evil spirits this is absolutely the case i mean again how long do we have to show how many statistics how many of these exorcisms that have been done mm -hmm. i mean robbie uh, manheim right. being one of the primary ones what was he doing using a Ouija, Ouija board, board to contact right. his aunt. Exactly. Right. And so you can and we're even getting more see. stories, I think, out there from people mm -hmm. who are coming out of the occult uh, or occult th things talking about the damage that it did to them. And, you know, thank goodness they found Christ at some yeah. point. Uh, you know, in their lives and are trying yeah. to uh, get their lives back together. One quick story just before we, we go to questions. Uh, Tammy Peterson, host of the Tammy Peterson podcast, wife of Canadian psychologist and author Jordan Peterson, another, uh, mm -hmm. from my perspective, uh, genius kind of mm -hmm. guy like you, uh, two of you yeah. probably get along wonderfully, oh. uh, announced that she has entered the RCIA program. Uh, she was raised in a Protestant family. Oh, wow. Uh, but, uh, you know, and but now with she had a, a health issue and stuff, and a, a friend of ours who was Catholic prayed the rosary and things with her, and uh, she just wakes up now and prays the Lord's Prayer, and she's on her way to becoming Catholic. So I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, point. Oh, and her husband, it. who's not Catholic, said, I support her pursuit of truth, which is what all of us need to do. So I figured I'd just mention that since he's obviously yeah. very popular out there and a lot of people listen to some of the things you he said. Bet. He's obviously gotten a lot more yeah. spiritually oriented, I'd say, over the last five years and in a lot of what his oh, conversations yeah, have, have come. So let's go to mm -hmm. some questions. Dear Father Spitzer, uh, thank you for answering my question on whether marriages without children are valid. You said they were, which I understand. However, I believe I misstated my question. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to know is if after the marriage, one or both spouses decide they do not want children, is the marriage still valid? Well, the marriage is valid, you know, once it's contracted with the intent, uh, you know, to have children. So if you, when the priest asks that question, will you accept children lovingly from God and bring them up in accordance with the law and the love of Christ and the church, if you said yes to that, well, at the time of the marriage, the marriage is valid. It's mm -hmm. contracted, uh, no question about that. Now, if one of the spouses uh, uh, changes her mind later, uh, then that's something that you know needs to be definitely worked out because that's a promise that was broken, but it doesn't invalidate the marriage. Mm -hmm. Secondly, though, if you can show that this uh, other spouse who supposedly changed his mind later, if you can show that that person um, you know, definitely wasn't going to have children, mm -hmm. definitely said that they weren't going to do it, you know, blah, 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 right. you know, and kept it hidden, uh, that might be uh, some kind of a ground for an annulment, but mm -hmm. the, the marriage is still valid, okay. but it might be some ground right. uh, for annulment of, okay. of the marriage because, of course, false intention. Right.
Next up, after 32 years of marriage, I'm finding myself suddenly overwhelmed with pain due to the fact that my husband was involved in taking his first girlfriend for an abortion almost 40 years ago. There may even be a second aborted child from his second girlfriend before me. I simply can't bear the thought that if I get to heaven, I will see these children. I'm now afraid to go to heaven. I'm in unbelievable pain and not finding comfort in the sacraments. How do I go on? This is anonymous. Anonymous, I'll just say this. When you get to heaven, you won't have to worry about pain. God's going to take care of all of your emotional pain relative to these children. You may see those children, you may not see those children, but over an eternity, you probably will see those children. Mm -hmm. But you will have no ego in the stake. You will not have any emotional pain in that stake. They won't have any ego in the stake. They'll have no emotional pain in the stake. You will be free to love them, and they will be free to love you. You've got to believe me that love can overcome even this kind of pain, even this kind of, you know, terrible you know, uh, uh, you know, impl implicit guilt. Uh, you know, you don't have to worry about that. Right. You will literally be freed from all of that pain. You will be purified from all of the ego attachments. They will be purified from the pain and the ego attachment. And you will be free to love them, and they will be free right. to love you. And that'll be a very good thing. And you have to trust God. Mm -hmm. Do not trust the judgment of your feelings at this moment. Mm -hmm. Trust God, right? Just have faith in me, have faith in my Father, right? And that, uh, you know, when, uh, when Jesus is saying, you know, uh, you know that uh, to have faith, what is, fear is useless. What is needed is trust. Mm -hmm. And that we have to suspend our judgment. We have to put the, our, um, you know, our judgment, our belief in him and what mm -hmm. he promised that he would do for us in heaven and just trust him. You will love those kids. They will love you. It right. will be a joy, not a pain. Right, absolutely. And of course, she wasn't involved in those kinds of things. And obviously, in some ways, with her yeah. marriage to her husband, she she probably has brought him along in a, in a positive way over these years. And yeah. she should uh, keep, uh, you know, keep that mm -hmm. close to her heart. With that, we're going to take a break. Much more, of course, with Father Spitzer and more of your questions. So stay with us for part two. Right after. Thank you so much for staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe as we continue on with Father's book, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. But first of all, I want to tell you about his latest book, Science, Reason, and Faith, Discovering the Bible, and of course, now available through our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. It's a wonderful book uh, and a great book for people interested in Scripture. Uh, Father Spitzer covers the waterfront, and we're back with him. Great to see you, Father. And uh, want to oh, encourage people to, uh, to get that book. We had a chance to talk about that uh, book as well when we were out at Napa, but that show is not going to air for a little bit of a little while. We try and space yeah. things out a little bit, a little bit. So let's That's get back fine. to some questions. <laughs> 
we, we want to maximize each book's sales before we roll out the next one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Dear Father Spitzer, I love your show and watch it faithfully every week. I'm currently engaged to an unbaptized non-Catholic who desires to be baptized and take religious instruction so he can come into the Catholic Church before we get married. His first marriage was in a Catholic church. Hmm. His second marriage was in a wedding chapel in Las Vegas. I read in the catechism about the Pauline privilege. Would this apply to him, or does he still need an annulment? Darlene. Oh, Darlene, he'd, he'd need an annulment. Um, mm. So I uh, hate to say that. But um, uh, no, I don't. I mean, it's obviously <laughs> a, you know, a good uh, rule for the church. But I know you were expecting to, to hear it. Right. Yeah, the, if, you know, the best thing you can do right now is um, you know, go to your uh, parish priest, mm -hmm. ask him to start um, an annulment uh, proceeding. Uh, for your um, uh, uh, husband-to-be, just uh, uh, get that proceeding going and um, uh, to see if there, you know, there's probably a significant evidence that on the part of one or uh, both of the parties, mm -hmm. there was certainly not intention to remain, um, uh, you know, permanently married and probably some other factors that might need to be unearthed. But you may have a chance there of getting um, uh, an annulment for him, and so I would mm -hmm. definitely pursue it um, uh, with your parish priest. Uh, and I think um, once that happens, the Las Vegas one, you don't have to worry so much about. Uh, but the you mean um, when you get mal the, uh, married Catholic by the one, uh, by the Elvis impersonator, it doesn't count. <laughs> 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 anyway, yeah. So, uh, but uh, that still will have to okay. uh, be uh, signed off, um, okay. you know, by the by the church as well. But, uh, okay. but the the one definitely the first one uh, does need to be annulled. Okay. And another question, uh, dear Father Spitzer, I have a difficult time believing that God forgives everyone, including those who have committed horrible atrocities, such as we've seen here in the Middle East recently. If they confess and ask forgiveness on their deathbed. Are all past offenses just wiped away? I can't believe that they would share a place in heaven with saints and the truly righteous. Thank you for helping me become a better Catholic. Teresa. Well, Teresa, to be honest, if a person had a sincere confession on his deathbed and just basically threw himself upon the mercy of Christ uh, on the deathbed, uh, yes, uh, that, that there's a very good possibility that if it was sincere, yes, Christ would wipe away uh, all of the sins of that person. Now, of course, there may be a very lengthy time in purgatory, uh, as you know, we as Catholics believe, because someone who is so immersed in right. in sin that he would actually cause you know hostages, innocent hostages, to 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 die or even to be tortured or something, uh, that would be. Uh, uh, I'd say that's a lengthy stay there mm -hmm. to detach right. from those things. The second thing, though, that must also be considered is when you go that far deeply into evil, mm -hmm. it's not as easy as you think to throw yourself upon the mercy of God. I'm sure some people right. have, and they were very sincere when they did. But I'll tell you one thing, when you're down that deep, the Holy Spirit is not going to let you just go. I mean, uh, the evil spirit, I mean, is not right. going to let you just go. He's going to basically battle for your soul uh, as much as he can. And so I will tell you, it is very difficult. The further down the path you get, 
the more addicted to the darkness you become and the less you believe that you can actually turn or even the less you will desire mm -hmm. to turn, the less you will actually desire to go to heaven. You might think you prefer the darkness to the light mm -hmm. because after all, you've been living that way all your life. And if that's the case, then, you know, the odds of that person you know, repenting are pretty slim. Right. But in answer to your question, yes, yes, right. Christ could forgive all of those sins with a sincere confession. Right. That will, of course, accompany a long purgatory stay, I'm quite sure. And in addition to that, the odds of that person making that sincere contrition are much, much, much less right. than you or a person who's a practicing Catholic. Right, right. Yeah, the, the hardened heart kind of a uh, biblical reference, yeah. you know, where, you know, that's not exactly yeah. what you're doing. It's not waiting till the last minute and saying, well, I'm just going to cop a plea on the way out the door here after I enjoy yeah, exactly. and have a good time. It doesn't <laughs> kind of work that way. One last question. We'll get to yeah. the book. Um, yeah. Dear Father Spitzer, if I understand correctly, when we are in purgatory, we are ridding ourselves of attachment to sins to this world. This sounds like something we need to work out on our own with the, with with the grace of God. How then does someone praying for my soul benefit me with something I need to do myself? Well, uh, you don't need to do it yourself. You need to do it with the grace of God. Mm -hmm. Yes, you are absolutely correct that in purgatory you are being freed uh, from detachments, mm -hmm. and that includes a lot of your personal decision. But you know as well as I do, we really need the grace of God to push us over the line. We need the grace of God to help us get detached. It's like, you know, uh, St. Paul says, this is, you know, it's a tough matter. Why do I do what I don't want to do? I do the evil that I would not do, and I do not do the good that I would do. What a wretched man I am. Mm -hmm. Who can help me free myself from this wretched body? Thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he is saying, you know, what Paul is saying is, without Jesus, man, you're not going anywhere. Now, what the prayers are doing is pleading on behalf of you, you know, your loved ones, uh, asking the Lord to bring that grace to your aid as you make those free decisions. Yes, you're going to have to make the free decision. But have you ever noticed this when you're kind of in your own attempts to, to, to free yourself mm -hmm. from, let's say, a detachment to whatever it is, greed or lust or envy or vanity or pride or whatever, as you're trying to detach yourself uh, from the uh, uh, objects of, of those sins, uh, what you notice, though, is, you know, you, you, your decision, your resolve has to be there. Mm -hmm. And then slowly but surely, sometimes when you just, you know, your imagination is just being bombarded. And, of course, the evil spirit, you know, when you start getting, you know, resolute, you know, about things, you, you, you know, you're almost, the spirit, a whole evil spirit comes in, you're just going to over, try and overpower you. Mm -hmm. But if I, if you use these little prayers like I was talking about, Lord Jesus, right, I place my trust in you, or that, um, uh, you know, uh, ad, uh, that uh, uh, prayer, uh, you know, where you uh, basically command the evil spirit, you just say, you know, in the name of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, or just say, in the name of Jesus, keep it simple, mm -hmm. be gone, Satan. Mm -hmm. So you're getting tempted and tempted, but if you can just have enough resolve 
to keep repeating that prayer. In the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan. In the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan. And you just keep repeating, and that's all you can do. You'll notice that there is grace that rushes in. There is grace that is going to detach you from whatever it is you're thinking about. I mean, even sometimes the most really intense temptations by just repeating that again and again and again and throw, you know, Lord Jesus, I put my trust in you. You can feel sometimes, actually feel that there is, you know, a, a, a slipping away mm -hmm. of, of, you know, the intensity of the temptation. And at that point, you just need to tell yourself, just relax. You know, that's what I say to myself. Relax, mm -hmm. right? Just, just relax. So if I'm getting really ticked off at something or somebody, <laughs> right? You know, I just, I say, you know, that, just relax. Just keep relaxed, you know. And then I go into, in the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan. Or I just, Lord Jesus, I put my trust in you. And you can feel that emotional energy begin to subside. Hmm. And there, you, you know, what's doing that? Do you think? It's grace. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. And so that's why, I, why we should pray mm -hmm. for everybody there. Because it's not just your resolve. Your resolve is going to be much better complemented by the grace of Jesus and bringing the Lord into the equation. It's, have you ever tried to just beat sin by yourself and just say, I'm not going to do X anymore, whatever it is. I'm not going to have any vain thoughts, angry thoughts, envy thoughts. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then, of course, you start doing them. Mm -hmm. So if you rely on yourself alone, it's very hard to do. But if you just say, just relax to yourself, right? You just say, just relax, just, mm -hmm. just keep relaxed. The Lord Jesus, you know, I place my trust in or Lord Jesus, help me here. Or, you know, you, you, say, you know the evil spirit's in trying to intensify. Then just say, in the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan. Say it five times, right in a row. You'll see you need that grace. Right. And the prayers that all of us can bring to bear for every person in purgatory is going to help with that grace right. and even help with that person calling upon Jesus to give him that grace hmm. rather than to try and resolve it himself. Right, absolutely. And we just came out of, obviously, uh, All Saints uh, Day and the idea of, of praying mm -hmm. for the Holy Souls, uh, All Souls Day as well. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to your book, mm -hmm. page 34, Social Ethics in the Church's Social Teaching. Uh, we encounter a new problem. Jesus did not exactly state his position on social ethics, you say. Well, then how do we figure out what they mm -hmm. should be? Okay, right. So that's a really good question because obviously Jesus talks a lot about marriage, mm -hmm. talks a lot about personal commitment, and talks a lot about what we call, uh, you know, the virtues, right? And, and uh, the opposite, as it were, of those deadly sins. And he talks about the deadly sins as well. So Jesus talks a lot about those personal things, those virtuous things, what's going on in, inside of us individually. But he didn't actually state a social ethic. Uh, you know, he states the first principle, given mm -hmm. to Caesar what is Caesar, uh, given to God what is God's. But, you know, going beyond these things and talking about the, the obligation of business to society, to the common good, or establishing, uh, you know, uh, the principle of the common good, the principle of solidarity, the principle of sub 
subsidiarity, the principle of individual human dignity, the principle of, uh, you know, um, uh, democracy and freedom, the principle of, uh, you know, stewardship for the environment. Mm -hmm. so Jesus didn't give uh, the, the principles of, of, of social ethics or what we call Catholic social teaching. Mm -hmm. So um, what happened, of course, is that uh, Jesus focused on the individual and getting them, the individual, to heaven. And then he started his social movement by, you know, creating out of the silver rule, mm -hmm. do no, un, uh, you know, unnecessary harm to others. He moves it to the golden rule, do the good for others that you would have them do to you. Mm -hmm. So he moves it along up to that thing. And you can see that that's when the Catholic Church begins to, you know, double, triple, quadruple, quintuple, within a few d uh, decades, the amount of social programs that are coming mm -hmm. through the church, the amount of public welfare coming through the church, the amount of educational programs coming through the church, the amount of public health programs and hospitals coming through the church. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's explosive mm -hmm. as it's going through the Roman Empire, but it's coming through all of these positive things mm -hmm. uh, that the, the church is actually doing. But then finally, when the church assumes a position after the Edict of Milan, right, then, of course, Constantine basically turns um, the Roman Empire uh, over to uh, the uh, Christian church, to, to the Catholic church as the state religion. Mm -hmm. Well, once that happens, all of a sudden, the church is confronted with a whole new set of realities that it didn't have when it was getting persecuted and martyrs were prolific, mm -hmm. right, uh, during the first two centuries, two and a half centuries. So what now um, is, uh, do we do, says, the, you know, the, the, these thinkers. And you can begin to see the social ethics that's now coming out of the Didache and, of course, um, Justin Martyr and St. Irenaeus, St. Polycarp. These guys are starting to craft some principles they're getting there. But it was the great, great St. Augustine. It was he uh, who truly took all of that previous precedent and combined it with these great uh, legislative and, and, and governmental societal geniuses like Cicero mm -hmm. and, and uh, uh, classical thinkers like Plato and gave it, you know, literally baptized these guys, uh, as it were, into the Christian church and began to put the first uh, social ethics together. And mm -hmm. Augustine's statement, uh, you know, about uh, an unjust law is no law at all. The moment that Augustine says it, social ethics is off the charts. Because what Augustine did in that simple phrase was to show that the principle of justice itself, which he was very careful to define, both platonically and, and through Cicero's thoughts, but also, most importantly, through Jesus's thoughts, he takes that uh, notion of justice and he says that principle is higher than the positive law. Positive law is a kind of law that comes from a legislature or from a court decision or something, or a governmental institution says, hey, don't go through red lights. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, red lights, you're required by law to stop. You know, but it doesn't, there's nothing to it. But what the, the what Augustine says, any positive law that goes against the principle of justice is no law at all. Now we've got a first uh, the, um, law of social justice. Now it's becoming clear. But remember, he, Augustine's this genius, right? He's, he's just taking all of the social thought that's coming from, uh, you know, 
Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and the great saints, Polycarpus said, he's taking all these principles and what he's doing, uh, and Ignatius of Antioch, how could I forget, all these, uh, and of course, uh, Origen, Didache, et cetera. But he's putting it together, and he writes a couple of different books, but uh, one of his uh, books, um, you know, is uh, The City of God. And The City of God really is the first attempt to create a social ethic. Mm -hmm. And it is a brilliant work. It's a thick work. It's really tough to get through, mm -hmm. but you have to read it. Without that book and without Augustine's, um, you know, uh, um, uh, other works on freedom, which are very important uh, as well. If you read his book on, on freedom, you read his uh, book, uh, um, you know, on the city of God, you put it together, you can just see the mind of the other great genius, St. Thomas Aquinas, beginning to hatch. All of a sudden, uh, you know, Aquinas, oh, he, he sees the point of, um, of uh, Augustine so clearly, and he combines it so brilliantly with Aristotle, which really Augustine didn't have any access to. But in any case, what happened? Well, the church got put into a position of civil authority, which it never had. And that's why it had to craft those social doctrines. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, then, um, you know, Jesus didn't talk about that because at the time when he was, um, you know, preaching, really mm -hmm. there was no, the church had no civil power whatsoever. Right. But then finally, of course, we, right. we had to talk about the just society. And we had to talk about um, not only the just society from the vantage point of government, though that was really important, but also from the vantage mm -hmm. point of laws and from legislation. And then, of course, talking about a just war versus a war which is not just did the brilliant Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas come through again. Mm -hmm. And of course, then we begin to generate things. Even when we get into the time of the Industrial Revolution, the church is still very, very busy. And another great genius, Leo XIII, comes along. And he writes this encyclical called Rerum Navarum. And that encyclical, again, this guy's like a genius. Where did he, you know, what planet? And, and of course, he's not only got a great grip on Aquinas and, and Augustine, this guy actually understands that the economics of the Industrial Revolution and the labor movements that were born out of it have to be integrated into the social political justice that mm -hmm. came out of Suarez and out of, uh, you know, um, Aquinas and, and, and Augustine. So he sees that, you know, we have to go one step further. And he writes this encyclical, Rerum Novarum, where he brilliantly portrays, the, if you take the social doctrine of just the three greats, Augustine, Aquinas, and Suarez, you put them together and you now apply it to the economic situation, what do you get? And he sets out this whole series of what he, we call now the principles of Catholic social teaching, mm -hmm. where he puts out, you know, that, you know, these principles of solidarity and, and, and uh, principles of, of uh, common good and subsidiarity and individual dignity. And he's got these things laid out where he's actually, he doesn't, uh, Leo Thirteenth wants, he thinks capitalism is the only way that production will ever survive. And boy, was he right about that insight. I mean, that is brilliant and of itself. I mean, the guy did not lack IQ. So the idea, mm -hmm. when you put all, the whole thing together, is you've got this brilliant document 
that becomes the foundation stone for the rest of Catholic social teaching. And it now integrates economic teaching and it's applied in the context of business, economics, uh, international politics, as well as national politics, as principles of government, and so forth and so right. on. If, if you just go and re get that freebie book that you can get um, called uh, the, the Social Teaching of the Catholic Church, and it's a free from the USCCB online. You can get a digital copy. It breaks everything down according to the six principles, then the seven contexts in which they're applied, like business or government or environmental stewardship, whatever breaks them down and you can then take a look at just this treasure trove of social teaching that and, and economic social economic teaching that has come from the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. even international politics, everything. I mean it is there is no greater document of social justice no better articulated than what the Catholic right. has, Church has done um, since the writing uh, in 1891, right. I believe it was, uh, of Rerum Novarum by Leo okay. uh, the 13th. And so much of that was done by John okay. Paul II, too. Absolutely. What a brilliant guy right. John Paul II was. Absolutely. Uh, we yeah. got about three minutes or so. Uh, one last comment here. In this Oops. section here, we've got, you talked about the golden rule and uh, render unto Caesar. Uh -huh. We've got the idea of uh, yeah. what you do to least of my brethren, I think we heard. But you also include yeah. the Sabbath was not made for man. You know, the Sabbath was made mm -hmm. for man, not mm -hmm. man for the Sabbath. How does that fit Man in? for the Sabbath. Yeah, how does that fit in? Well, because, well, what Jesus does is he turns basically uh, dyadic culture on its head. So, it, you know, you can look at culture from the vantage point of, uh, you know, what we might call a very high group culture versus a very low group culture. A high group culture looks to the authority source, protects the authority. The authority source and the law will tell us everything we need to know. Uh, individual decisions are low on the, on the scale of um, virtues and things of that nature. So, of course, the low group culture, the individualistic culture, right, that culture prizes, um, you know, um, the individual, prizes, you know, I mean, torture in a high group culture, eh, not so bad. In a low group culture, horrible, right? In a high group culture, well, you know, if you have to lie and, and you know, to, to protect the authorities, eh, okay, you know, but, it, you know, lying in authenticity, not so good in a low group culture. So there's this aversion, you know, of the values of the two different cultures. Now, the problem that you get to, uh, you know, is, well, Jesus is, you know, he, he's in Jerusalem, right? First century Jerusalem. This is a high group culture. I mean, really high group culture, right? The authority source is really important. The law is super important. Right. And what dignity does a human being have next to the law? I mean, the law, the word of God, you know what? I mean, of course, you know, you're just a little pipsqueak, nothing, right? In the high group culture, the individual's got no value. Mm -hmm. But Jesus says, wait a second here. 
that little widow or whatsoever you do to these least ones of mine and that slave mm. they all have an intrinsic dignity every one of them has you know angels that look into my father's eyes every what you do to the least of them you do to me mm. then he cat he just escalates the dignity of the individual right right away mm. right up to the top there so that it's comparable with the law now all of a sudden you can't just say well I'm not going to take any pity on this individual he happened to be suffering on the Sabbath day and he should have come right. back another okay. day Jesus says no no the dignity of that person really matters it's comparable to the law you have to make adjustment you fools which one of you takes it doesn't take his ox out to water him on the Sabbath and yet you let this poor person just Absolutely. you know um, you right. know suffer, suffer needlessly because of the Sabbath yeah right. yeah Absolutely. Okay. With right. that being said, we're going to ask you to uh, give us your blessing on the way out the door, Father. Oh, yeah. Excellent. And uh, bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all consolation, the Lord who truly looks at our dignity and looks at us with great mercy and love, the Lord who loves the fact that we try our best to follow him and to follow him in the church, bless your life with grace and help you to follow him ever more nearly and help you not only into your own salvation but to help you to help others to their salvation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Always a blessing to be with you. Stay well. We shall see you next week. And don't forget, Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available through our religious catalog. Next week, our show topic, we continue with the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church. So much still to mine. We've got our bookmark interview, a blue-collar answer to Protestantism, Catholic questions that Protestants can't answer, but John Martinoni can answer them. So check out that. It's a fine book interview. We also got a wonderful book on Advent Reflections we've had available the last couple of years. You may want that for your family as well. And we've got the Hour of the Lady program. This inspirational five-part miniseries explores the role of lay Catholics in the world today and how many are stepping up to be influential leaders, especially in this new social media kind of ecology. Monday, November 13th, and Friday, November 17th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And I'm Doug Keck. This has been Father Spitzer's Universe. Journey with us again next time when we meet up here in Father Spitzer's Universe. Look forward to it. Thanks. <laughs>